Well, good morning. Man, it's great to have you at church today. I'm so thankful that you're here. It's raining, and here you are. Did you know that we have a 9 o'clock service? So if you love Jesus and you don't need children's ministry, I know God is leading you to come to 9 o'clock. So we're, we're, having, we're having this great, wonderful season of our church, and if you're new today, then I'm so thankful you came to church. I, I really am. I'm, it's hard to come to church. It's awkward. It's a little bit uh, unnerving, and we don't want to admit that, but it's kind of a little bit, uh, it brings nerves out. So thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us, and if you give us your connection uh, card or text us, we just want to know who you are, and we're not going to harass you. I will not be at your house before you get there today, uh, so nothing like that. But we just want to kind of know um, and, and help you um, get into the church body here. We're, if you consider this your church home, though, we've been talking about forward together. And so today is the last day to make those pledges. This is our way to ensure that the tithe goes to uh, all ministries and that we can cover the note on this facility by the pledges that we make. So my wife and I will tithe uh, our 10% of what God has uh, given us. We will give that to him first. And then on top of that, we will say our forward together pledge is X amount of dollars for the coming year. And so you can, you can grab all those cards if you want to jump in with us, and that allows us to just make sure all the, the, um, the building is covered. And as we build a base uh, through the coming year and couple of years, then we will be able to move forward as God has blessed and is blessing this ministry. And I know you want to be a part of that, as you always are. And many of you that are new have jumped in, so I want to thank you for that as well. You can drop in the box, give it to me, and we will be blessed by uh, your gift to the Lord. Uh, we're about three-fourths of the way to our goal, so we're excited to, to reach that goal hopefully today and, and move forward. So you know what today is? Do you know what today is besides Sunday and the last day for our Forward Together campaign? Do you know what today is? It's Valentine's Day. Now, I know there are several men here who did not know that, and you just found that out, didn't you? It's Valentine's Day. I know there's a couple of men here who probably have been coerced to come to church. It's Valentine's Day, babe. Can't you just go to church with me just today? And you're like, fine, whatever. And all across this country, pastors are giving relationship talks, how to love one another, a fighting fair, um, how, to, how to know that love, love covers and, and God has, has ordained this, and, and all these great messages. I got on uh, Facebook and Instagram this morning, and all my friends were posting uh, their sermon series, and I, I kind of wanted to go to their church. Like, that's a cool series. No, that's a cool series. They're all on, on marriage and love and dating, and, and it's going to be great days for them. But you came here. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you came here, and I don't know what's wrong with me either, but we are in this third series on, uh, on the gates of Jerusalem. We're talking about the book of Nehemiah, and we just walk through the Bible and talk about what it says and, and highlight what God thinks is important. And so here we are, we're at the gates of Jerusalem, it's from the book of Nehemiah, on Valentine's Day, no less, we're looking at all the gates, and the gate we're on today, on this day of love, is the dung gate. So I don't know if this makes me... An idiot or a genius? Nothing says confidence is held in your pastor than dung gate conversations on a love holiday. But here we are. So Nehemiah's building this wall. He's, he's a thousand miles away, and he sees the destruction of this wall around his beloved hometown city. And he gets permission from his, from his boss, Artaxerxes, to travel across this unforgiving desert and rebuild this wall. And he watches in disbelief as nobody has done anything. I mean, if you've ever sat and said, why isn't somebody doing something? Well, that's what Nehemiah felt. How come somebody's not resolving this problem? 
And so he goes and in a very quick fashion begins to rebuild the wall, and then he puts ten gates in that wall. And so we're taking a gate or two a week and looking at the importance of them. You say, well, why why do we care about these gates around this city, right? Well, we care about it because, one, it it was important in several ways. Uh, For Nehemiah, many things were were coming at him. There was armies advancing that were going to attack in those days. So So the wall helped uh, fortify the city. Marketplace transactions at these gates took place, and so uh, they had a lot of transactions happening. That was important. Temple offerings would come in, and that was important. Criminals were uh, tried and executed and convicted both at the uh, gates, uh, and then elders gave advice at these gates. So the modern-day parallel is we take a gate, and then we say, what does that mean to us today? Because if, if God thinks it's important enough to lead Nehemiah in that way, how can we learn from that and apply it. As God builds this church around us, as many of you are new, as some of you come back, as our, as our online crowd, thanks for watching with us today. Sorry about the sound, by the way. We've got it resolved. Love you guys. Thanks for blowing up my phone this morning. So, but, but as people come back into the, to the church, as, they, as they're able to come into our gathering, we'll make sure that we highlight the things that God thinks are important. We looked at, at uh, the first gate. Can you show me that, Anna? So the first gate is the sheep gate. And we said basically that lambs were brought in through this gate to be brought to the temple, and then they would be sacrificed. It was important because we know that Jesus is the the lamb that was slain for us. We we talked about the fish gate, that all fish brought to the market came through this gate, and that the parallel for us was not only should we be uh, those who make a living, but we should make a large part of our life fishing for men, Jesus said. In other words, reaching people with the gospel. We talked about the old gate. We talked about the fact that elders sat and dispensed wisdom at this wall and, and, and uh, gave thought and godly counsel. Now, let's think about it after. The truth is old friends will give you permission to do anything, won't they? Go ahead. What does it matter? What's the big deal? How bad could it actually be? But an elder will sit down with you and give you advice that you should consider. You've got to recognize the difference in your life. And then we talked about the valley gate. The valley gate uh, reminds us that uh, because this city was surrounded by valleys, which we'll talk more about today, that in the highs on the mountaintop or in the lows of the valley that God walks with us every step of the way if we'll surrender to him. Which leads us on Valentine's Day to the dung gate, right? So appealing right before your lunch, by the way. You're welcome. And that, so here we are. Here's a picture of the Dung Gate. So it's at the southern uh, part of the city, of the wall. And uh, what we find is that this, this city is surrounded by three valleys. So on every, on every part of this city, both with the valley gate and then coming around, there are, are massive valleys that have dropped by this city as it kind of sits on its perch. Now, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 13 says this. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun. We talked about that last week. They rebuilt it, put its doors on bolts, bars in place, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. You know what that means? They knew when to stop. They knew how far to serve, and then they knew they didn't want to go anymore, and they stopped. And verse 14 says, the dung gate was repaired by one man, Malkijah. He was the son of a ruler of the district. He rebuilt it, put its doors on, its bolts, its bars were all put in place. So what's interesting is when we talk about the four gates previously in the last couple weeks, it was all done by groups of people. When we get to this week, you realize that just one man rebuilt this gate. You know why? Because it was nasty. 
Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to be around it. Nobody wanted to be a part of it. In fact, his Hebrew name literally means my God is king because it's going to take somebody whose name is my God is king to get through the dung gate. I mean, literally. And so it's not great breakfast or, or lunch conversation or whatever, but the honest truth is in biblical times that, <laughs> that dung was more than animal manure. It was, it was human excrement, garbage. It was trash. It was any kind of waste, any, any kind of waste. And so Everything was taken out of this southern gate in the southern part of the city to the valley. Now, you didn't know this valley, the Valley of Hanom, okay? Valley of Hanom. And this valley is called the Valley of Hanom or the Valley of Children. Because previously during the period of the kings, starting with Solomon, they, the, the king of Israel, the, the Israelites started to worship false gods. They started to get their eyes off the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, and they started to worship Chmash, Molech, Baal. And Solomon began to build in the valley of Hanom, which is the southern part of this city below the gates. He started to build um, uh, poles to other gods and, and Asher poles. And he started to build um, idols and he started to build shrines. And he, he put them all over the place. And then the people brought pagan rituals to this valley. And one of the rituals was they would take their children and at the pagan fire altar, they would set their child on fire so that the God would look at them and say, you are so, so blessed and you have a good life. And so they would literally sacrifice children in this valley. And Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 35 says this. It says that they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hanon. Right? We're talking about this valley. They built these high places for an unknown God or for a God that's not the one we worship, and to sacrifice their son and daughters to these gods, though I never commanded it, nor did I ever enter my mind that they would do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. They would also um, take uh, a drumbeat. They would, try to, they, would try to, they would try to have drumbeats all over at, at all hours to drown out the sound of children's screams and cries as they were sacrificed to these gods. And Josiah was one of the good kings, and he starts to, to um, in his reign, begin to reform and, and get rid of old ways. And it says this in 2 Kings, that he desecrated the area, which was in the valley of home. No one could use it to sacrifice or his son or his daughter in the fire to Melech. Okay, so when Nehemiah gets there and he starts building this wall, this is what this valley has been used for. I mean, it's just, it's just filth. It's pagan, it's filthy, it's, everybody's mind goes to the worst place possible. It's just, it's just horrible. And so he shows up, and they've been purged at this point. They've been in exile for 70 years with the Babylon, uh, Babylonians, and, and so child sacrifices and idols and paganism, and their desire to have an earthly king, all gone. They, they say, we realize we don't, we, we don't, we don't like the, the pagan kings. And so he takes this horrific place that they would have known, and he literally builds the dung gate and turns it into the city dump. And in order to keep disease from spreading and all, all the things that go with that, they burned everything all the time. So they literally set this place on fire and burned it 24-7. So that means animal waste, human waste, everything that came in that was trash, everything you wanted to get rid of was continually on fire. Happy Valentine's Day. And so for us to understand this biblical truth, we must imagine the sight, the stench, 
and the smoke that was continually rising from this place, as well as their memory of what they had done in the past to all those before them. It would have been horrific. It would have been vile and grotesque and, and putrid. It, it, would have, it would have, just to look at it would have just made you sick. To smell it would, would have just made you, your stomach turn. And literally as you looked over the city, you would see the smoke of the southern end coming up from this disgusting area in the valley of Hanom. It was horrible. And yet Jesus at one point actually uses this location as a visual illustration because they all knew this story. I have to tell it to us, right? But they knew this story. They, they just already had known this. And so in part, he said, this is what hell is like. This is what Mark chapter 9 says. He uses this really dramatic language, and he says, hey, hey, don't, don't cruise into hell whole and miss heaven because you didn't take drastic actions in your life. L- listen to these words. These are pretty, pretty drastic. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't go cut your hand off, okay? But he's, he's trying to get their attention. It's better for you to enter life maimed with two hands than to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. He's referencing Hanon. He's referencing this valley where it never, the fire never quenches and everything just continues to eat and absorb and consume trash and filth. And he uses this dramatic message. He doesn't mean go cut your hand off it, but he's saying deal with the importance of the disgusting filth in your life. Literally, the Bible would say that sin is filth to God. So deal with the sin in your life because literally you're Eternity of heaven or hell hangs in the balance. And so people just keep trying these days to erase hell. If God is a loving God, he would never send anyone to hell. The, the modern-day progressive churches are, are now kowtowing to the world's wants. They want to keep heaven but eliminate hell. But if you got one, you got the other. The Bible talks about both. I just have to be honest with you that we will love anybody and everybody who comes in here. In recent weeks, we've had people get mad at me and leave during the service. Feel free to stay put during the service because nothing I'm going to say is what you have to believe. But I can back up what I'm saying with the Bible, just so you know. And, and also, if there's ever an opinion I give, you ought to go search that out in the Bible. You really you ought to go search that out and find out for yourself. And so Jesus, he literally says, I know you want to have heaven, but not hell. But he says 11 of 12 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he uses hell, and it's this word Gehenna, which means hell, and it's always in reference to that valley of Hanom, the, the southern Dungate Valley. So when we talk today, Hell is not a fable or a figment or somebody's imagination. It's a real place. It's described in the Bible. It's a place of fire and torment, of outer darkness, an eternal suffering of weeping and gnashing of teeth, something that we wouldn't wish on anybody, not even our worst enemy. But it's important to remember that it is real, and it is not at a place of annihilation, as some believe it is a real long-term suffering. So you say, well, what has this got to do with me? 
pastor. Well, the Dungate's a parallel for us, right? We take this modern-day look at it, and, and literally the thing is, it reminds us, this southern gate, this into this valley, this trash dump, always on fire, filth, stench, smoke, reminds us of everything in our life that God sees that is filthy. And it reminds us of the picture of sin that the Bible says, if unresolved, leads to hell. So sin's sin's mentioned through the entirety of the Bible as being a human condition. Like you walk in today, like somebody is the best person in this room. You know, you might be sitting by them, you might be them, right? And somebody is technically the worst person. You're probably sitting beside them. You know, like, no, I'm just kidding. No, it wouldn't be you, of course, right? So, so somebody's the best, somebody's the worst. The Bible says it doesn't matter who's the best and the worst and everybody in between. That the human condition is that you have sinned and you fall short of what God says is the standard. And so we've separated ourselves, and it caused us to not be in right relationship with him. And so until we deal with the sin in our life, we cannot be in right relationship with God. And if we don't deal with it, the Bible says in this life, then we answer for it in the next, which is where we get super uncomfortable. And then, it, and then I think it also reminds us that we have, to, we have to deal with sin in our own lives, but we also have to address it in the life of, um, of not only the, the uh, unbeliever that we're like, oh, yeah, people, they understand, they got to get right. Man, the Bible says that the believer has got to repent, turn from your ways, and listen to the Lord, and walk in his way. And then the corporate body of the church, we have to make sure, like we do through this series, that we focus on the things that are actually important to God and not just fun to hear or entertaining to watch or see. As we build this church as God blesses and, 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 and uh, uses our work and our effort as he grows it and, and we give our efforts to this, we want to be about what he is about. And so we just have to agree. We have to agree that God hates sin and we should too. And, and that's from the top down. More than I'd like to admit, I hear these days people say, um, you know, a lot of times it's a Christian, because I don't expect a non-Christian, somebody who doesn't uh, have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I don't expect them to act the way the Bible describes. I mean, if they do, great, your life's going to work better, but I don't expect them to do that. But when somebody says, Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life, and, and he's, he's on the throne, and, and I want to live for him, then when I see um, them excuse sin, it makes me scratch my head. Now, I've been there. There's been moments where the Lord has not revealed to me that this is sin, but when he does, I have a decision. Am I going to eliminate it, or am I going to excuse it? And so when people let sin get into their life, and then they excuse it, it's like, hey, it's okay. I mean, God's forgiven me, and Jesus' is grace, and I'm going to live however I want to live, but he'll forgive me anyway. I think to myself, you're taking his life, his death, his resurrection, and you're cheapening it. God, forgive me when I've done that myself. And the longer I pastor and the farther away we get as a culture from biblical values, uh, the less these kind of actions and behavior surprise me, if I'm completely honest. It's not acceptable. It's just not as surprising. Maybe it's because I'm getting old and cranky. I don't know, you know. But I'm, but I'm just not as surprised anymore. But every so often, seemingly more these days, a popular thought leader rises to take on maybe more Christian popularity or they get... Uh, 
infamous on YouTube or they become a mega church pastor or they have some kind, of, some kind of ministry that puts them globally exposed to fame and fortunes. And they build platforms that make money and tons of money and they, they try to, uh, you know, not make those quite so obvious. And then all of a sudden you hear, oh, they fall from grace. There was recently, I'll tell you this because I think we have to address to make sure we understand. The Bible says that we should not, um, that should we be careful that we don't judge others. But I would say to you is that you should cultivate a critical eye and kill a critical spirit. So you should look at the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. Man, I, I'm not judging you. I'm just not walking that way. I can tell what the Bible says is right or wrong. And for me and my house, here's where we're going. And when God convicts me, Lord, help me to stay humble and help me to stay in your way and in your will. But God, I'm going to stay right at your heels because I know I could be next. So there's this pastor at this church called um, Hillsong, New York, and it's a guy named Carl Lentz, and he's super uh, popular. All the celebrities want to come to his church, and, and, um, and he's a good-looking guy, and he's a real fit. He was actually a walk-on at NC State years ago. Uh, for basketball, and he leads this really feel-good church, or he did lead it. He never really wanted to call anything out. He'd never, ever preach about the dung gate on Valentine's Day, but neither would anybody else for that matter. So, uh, but so he just, he, whenever he would get cornered by people or, or in conversations, he never wanted to call anything wrong. Even what God clearly called wrong, he wouldn't want to say it to a world that was asking so it comes out eventually that he's got this double life and, and he's got a mistress. And, man, I don't know. I was really disappointed, but I honestly was not surprised. You know, you, you've had those kind of situations, both celebrities but also in your life, I would assume. He posts a lot of uh, shirtless pictures of all his tattoos. His wife's, he posts a lot of his wife's cleavage and he puffed up his pride with fame. And I just wasn't surprised. Didn't really sound like to me like what the Bible describes as a pastor. But then I was sitting at home uh, right after Christmas, around that time this year, and, um, and, it's, and then I, I heard of the story of Robbie Zachariah. Do you know Robbie Zachariah? He, is a, he was an apologist. He, he spoke truth to college campuses, and he had a worldwide ministry. And for decades, I was able to learn through his ministry how to articulate and, and argue from a biblical standpoint, defend my faith. I mean, he, he was, his ministry was so far-reaching, and he recently passed away. At his funeral, multiple people came to speak, uh, Tim Tebow, the vice president of the United States at that time. Like just, he was just really, really well-known. Well, come to find out, um, he had had quite a bit of success in his ministry. Also, he had a lot of money. Also, he had a side business of, like, massage parlors and some kind of other thing, uh, therapy sessions or whatever it was that he, he had, this whole network of things. And um, it had come out that he had, in 2017, been accused of abusing uh, a female, and his ministry just kind of passed it off like, no, that could not be true, never could be true, and I would have actually thought it was untrue. This is a smear campaign. You don't get it. I'm assuming when you get so, so uh, famous and you get a certain amount of wealth, uh, which I've never had either, so I assume people start to accuse you of things. That's my guess. Multiple multiple avenues, and it's probably hard to keep up with. But they passed it off, and so by passing it off, they unintentionally maybe allowed this to continue to happen and even speed up toward the end of his life to the point at which 
multiple women were abused, and he had multiple phones, and 200 women that were not um, his wife, and inappropriate pictures of them. And it just, all of a sudden you realize this person, this, this person that you had held so high, that, that had just been a, a voice into college campuses and into other uh, religions and, and, and into the church, when investigated, the original claims were not as bad as what they actually uncovered. So usually I'm like, oh, okay, I saw this coming. I didn't see it coming at all. And so it blindsides you. You say, oh, my goodness, I didn't see that coming. I was frustrated. It was like the more they uncovered, it just made me sick to my stomach. And then I went negative. I don't know if you do like that. Then I said, well, is anybody who they say they are these days? Nobody's who they say they are. That was my first feeling anyway, which is incorrect. And then, I, and then I thought about the, the fact that fame and popularity coupled with the love of money will change a person over time if you're not careful. So I think he probably started out in the right direction, but over time uh, he got off track and then he started to hide things and then he started to, to not quite hear or sense or feel what God felt was important. And then it became this huge lie to cover up all these things. And then I got irritated because there are hundreds of thousands of pastors and faithful church people who suddenly look unfairly guilty. Now, I know better than to put my hope in anyone but Jesus Christ, but I did it anyway, and once again, it turned around and bit me. You should not put your hope in any man or woman. Here's your Valentine's Day message. Don't put your hope in the person that is your Valentine love. Love them and serve them and, and walk with them, but don't put all your hope in them. And then studying for today, I was reminded that sin literally is filthy in God's eyes, period. That it's possible to hide, but not forever. So just to completely gross you out, since we're already on this gross topic uh, of dung and all that kind of stuff, Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that I had a neighbor who came to help me with my septic tank? Remember that? So my neighbor came to help me. I've got too many people in my house at this point. It's not permitted for that many people. We just keep taking people in. And so I got all these foster kids and all these people. And so, so, so the septic company came out to look at it. And every time somebody else would come out, they'd be like, man, there's so many people. And they all look different. And, you know, it's <laughs> just like, just quite the experience. And so so they're working on it, and they're explaining it to me and talking to me how this works, and this runs with this, and this is how this happened. He said to me, the septic guy says, you want to see something interesting? Now, anytime a septic tank company asks you, you want to see something interesting, always say no. Just say no. So I said, man, yeah, that sounds good. My wife's there, one of the babies there, and we're just all hanging out. Yeah, look at this. And he says, I want to show you something interesting that I found. So then, my, then I started thinking, like, well, now, how does that work? That's, I got scared for a minute because I thought, did I not teach my children to take the candy out of the wrapper? They've been eating the whole wrapper, and it's made it into our septic tank. And then I realized what had happened. If you, if you eat candy that you're not supposed to be eating and you put the wrapper in the trash can, mom and dad find it. If you eat it and put it in the toilet and flush it, no one will ever know <laughs> until they do. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but one child confessed. 
It was the best parenting moment I've ever had. I called them down. And I said, children, I need to talk to you. Are we in trouble? No. I said, guess what we found in the septic tank today? What? Candy wrappers. How do you think that happened? Yeah, yeah, I bet. All right? And here's what I know. I know that, that the truth is you've got to be sure, literally, that your sins will find you out. It's the truth. God's assessment of the human condition is that we are sinners from birth, that you're a good person. I, I, bet, I bet you're a good person, but you're a sinner from birth, and by that you have the disease of sin like every other human. And the only remedy for that is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, that God made him, speaking to Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I become more and more convinced as I watch churches talk about, I, I listen to a guy that he was talking about coping mechanisms. That's his strategy, coping mechanisms for family and friends and money and relationships, coping mechanisms, how, how to be happy. Man, you just need to read the Bible, open it up, say, what does God care about? If it's a sin, I'm going to stop doing it, I'm going to repent of it, I'm going to move on. And if he says do it, that's what I'm going to do. For real. God, let me tell you this, God's goal for you is not for you to be happy. I'm probably the only pastor saying that today too, you know. It, man, his goal is not for you to be happy. It's not. It's not for you to, you, to, to gain happiness. When you position yourself as the goal of being happy, you miss the goal of his, which is holiness, and, in, and then also miss a great deal of the Christian life that is offered to you. Think of it like this. If we were talking about happier, happiness or holiness, the goal of the Christian life is not happiness, it's holiness, right? So the more we pursue holiness, the more we experience happiness. If you go and pursue what God wants you to pursue, then you will start to feel a joy in your life that you didn't have before. If you chase what you want at the expense of what God wants, you will be miserable. If we only pursue happiness, we will never experience holiness. Fourthly, in pursuing happiness, we will only do what we want to do, not, not what the Lord wants us to do in order to pursue that. So we will start to do what makes us happy, not what makes him happy. And lastly... Pursuing holiness means that we want to live our lives to please the Lord. So sin is an issue not for those just outside the church, but inside the church. It's a, church, it's a, it's a topic for the church to have. And the reality is, is that not only are those who don't surrender to, to the Lord needing his grace, but also we are needing his truth and grace. 1 Peter chapter 14, though, says this. Chapter 1, verse 14. Do not conform to the evil that you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, before Christ. But just, who he, just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Anytime that I have known a sin in my life and I have addressed it at the foot of the Lord and, and repented, he has graciously forgiven me. It's harder for me to forgive me than it is for him to forgive me. Because I don't trust myself, and I don't trust that I'm going to be able to stop this. And, and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit's power in a couple weeks, but, but here's what you got to know about holiness. You say, well, well what's, what's the deal with holiness? Well, the Bible presents it in two ways. One is a position. The position is that it was laid upon us, that you say, 
Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need to be saved. I need you to be Lord of my life. And literally it is laid as an atonement upon you that, that you now have his holiness. It is also a practice. It is a position. It is also a practice in that you know what the Bible teaches, and it says to act a certain way, and if God calls that holy and righteous, then you are to live out that holy, righteous life in the way he describes. So the motive becomes not, I want to live this so that I don't, I don't lose my salvation, I don't end up in hell. The motive becomes, I want to love God with all my heart and please him and do what is honoring both to him and what he says will honor him. Even if I don't get it, I'm doing it. I'm following his will and his way. And what do we, we talk about today, when we talk about a gate like this, we have to look at our own, our own heart and say, Lord, there is beautiful parts of my life, but there is parts which are filthy and garbage and a mess. And we look good. We come to church. We look nice. We, but there are parts of me that are a mess. And Lord, as I surrender those to you, would you change them? Would you make it not filthy? Would you make it a position that I have your holiness and also a, a practice where I follow you and your ways? Psalms 34 says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And the Bible says when you confess your sin, Psalm 32, blessed are those who forget, who, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit has no deceit. When I kept silent, he said, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day. Night and day, your hand was heavy on me. He was convicted. One of the things that younger generations have a hard time feeling is the difference between an opinion that is strong and conviction. And so when the Lord starts to convict, people don't know what to do with it. So day and night, Lord, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped like as in the heat of the summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover it up. And I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And I can tell you, every single time I've done that, he's forgiven me. So I'm going to ask the band to come back up here in a minute. We're going to worship um, as we close. But one of the things I want to do today, I want to be the kind of church that is quick to repent and quick to turn and quick to be forgiven and move forward. And the Bible talks a lot about repenting and having the, the power of God and the Spirit as it moves in our life to not stay stuck or, or, or not have this fear of missing out, but to literally embrace, you said it, I'm going to do it, Lord, I'm with you. Now bless me and let's move. So some of you would say today for the very first time, I just need to say, God, forgive me. Of, of my sins. I'm a sinner. I understand that. At this point, I just am acknowledging that. I believe Jesus died and rose again, and I want to give him my life. If you make a prayer like that today, I want you to come find me and let me pray with you. But, but for many of us today, it will be, I've prayed that prayer a long time ago. I got baptized as a public display of what God's doing in my life, and yet there have been multiple times where I come back to the point of, God, I need your grace again. Maybe more today than yesterday. God, I've messed up, and I know it's filthy to you, and I know you see it, and so God, forgive me. Because what I don't want to do is be a, a church that can't repent and, be, and have forgiveness or makes it something that's so difficult 
At the end of our life, somebody looks back and says, man, they were hiding all kinds of things. There was all kinds of pride in their life, and they were abusing, and they were, they were manipulative, and they were, there, was, there was sin that was hitting. No, Lord, I'm laid completely bare. You see me? You hear me? I need you. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that, that um, you have time to reconcile while the day is light, but soon the day will be over. Second Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come, literally his return will come like a thief in the night. And the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed and the earth and everything in it. So you ought to live and seek a godly life while you look forward to the day of God and his return. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to stand in a minute. We're going to worship. And I'm going to stand right down here with you. And as God brings to my mind something that may be filthy to him, I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to ask for his grace, and I'm going to ask him to help me in the days ahead. And then I'm going to move forward in freedom. I'm going to encourage you to make that exact same prayer today. God, here I am. I need your grace. Forgive me and help me. As we stand and as we sing, would you make prayers like that all over this room today. I know God hears that and honors that. Father, we love you today. We're thankful that you are moving in our, in our world today. God, you're still calling people. You're, you're driving us to reach more, and you're driving us to bend our knee to your lordship, God. And so today what we hear is, Father, look and search our hearts and help us to see if there's anything within us that doesn't please you. And Lord, we give that to you today. So we're going to leave as people who have felt freedom, have asked forgiveness, and will move now in the power and the beauty of your spirit to, that, to a world that needs us to be true and authentic and like Jesus. So, Lord, help us, we pray as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Be blessed. We love you.